Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. The Girl on the Train author Paula Hawkins is out with the new murder mystery novel, A Slow Fire Burning. I spoke with her about the keys to writing mystery novels and the experience of seeing her work adapted for the big screen. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you and I know what it's about, but just so our listeners know, tell them the, the basic premise of the book here. Okay, this is a book about revenge and and deceit and murder, unsurprisingly, and three very intriguing women who may or may not be involved. So it opens with um, a young man's body discovered on a houseboat in the centre of London on the Regent's Canal. And a young woman is seen walking away. She has blood on her, on her clothing. It looks like an open and shut case. But of course it isn't. There's There are all sorts of different connections, family connections, um, all sorts of past traumas and tragedies coming back to haunt my characters. Awesome. Well, there's a ton of, of um, you know, in, in addition to sort of the mystery plot, there's a bunch of, you know, interesting themes. Uh, talk about how sort of the, the, the book explores the way that society judges us and uh, particularly women, actually, how society can view them uh, in a certain way. Well, yeah, so my my characters tend to be a little bit difficult. They tend to be outsiders. They are perhaps people who have not quite met society's expectations. And this is, I think, primarily true of the women. So they're not pretty and pleasing and likable and gentle and nurturing. All those things we ask women to be. They're a little bit difficult. They're suffering through various problems Laura for example who's, who's kind of the heart of the book she had an accident when she was a child and now she has some behavioral problems and she's judged often unfairly often harshly and so what I'm looking at is what it's like to go through life as a person like that who doesn't quite fit and doesn't act how we might expect um, you know what does that mean for you if you're a person like that Right, for sure, for sure. So that's sort of, you know, maybe like a sociological context a little bit, but talk about how, you know, when you're writing a mystery thriller, you know, what happened to this young man who's found murdered? To you, what is it? You know, I asked Mary Higgins Clark about this too, but I'm curious from you, like what's sort of the key to sneaking up on the audience a little bit, planting those red herrings, faking them out and dropping the little clues that, that shows who did it all along, but there's no way we know it until we see the end. But when we look back, we see the breadcrumbs, but you know, what's sort of the, what's sort of the key of that approach for you? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult thing to do. I think I think it's a difficult thing to do well, because you want obviously you want the, the book to be suspense, suspenseful and surprising and frightening. And you want there to be twists and turns. But that kind of thing can feel a bit manufactured if it's just done for the sake of the twist. So for me. Then a psychological thriller is actually, it's all about the psychology. It's about what leads people to commit these kind of crimes. But you've, so 
at the same time, you've got to layer in, as you say, you've got to lay these breadcrumbs, but I think the twists have to be earned. They've got to feel deserved and real. And, you know, they've got to come from characterization. You've got to believe that these people would act in certain ways. So I think it's a very fine balancing act between getting the right kind of level of suspense and surprise, but also writing something that doesn't feel kind of melodramatic and extreme. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I mean, it's it's a fascinating it's got to be a fascinating headspace to live in, Um, because obviously you're dealing when you're writing thrillers like this, murders and mysteries and things. It's got to be, you know, it's definitely dark material. But I mean, when, when you're when you're coming up with sort of these plots and you're dreaming all this up in your head, obviously it's fictional on the page. But are you walking around London and, and being, you know, oh, that's a place to hide a dead body. That's a place, you know, like, do you catch yourself being a little bit, you take yourself aback, like, well, that was a little morbid, but that's good for the book. <laughs> I do seem to have quite a morbid sensibility because that is something I do all the time. I'm constantly, well, not all the time, but often when I'm out and about, I will notice a place and think oh yes you could hide a body in there or oh you could just like push somebody over the edge there and no one would ever know so I do I do I'm on the lookout for good places to sort of do away with people which I think is actually really difficult these days because it's much harder than it used to be in the age of you know closed circuit television cameras and and mobile phones and everything it is much more difficult to get away with murder which is obviously a good thing in general but quite a, a tough thing for crime writers Oh, it, Jack the Ripper would have never survived with all this technology <laughs> and social media. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, well, ha, I, 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 I whenever I have someone so, you know, of your esteem on, you know, I'm, I'm always curious how you got into it to begin with. So obviously you were, you know, you were born, I guess you were, you were born in what? Rhodesia, which now is Zimbabwe. Um, how did you get into reading? Did you read these sort of, you know, crime thrillers growing up? Or, you you know, were you like obsessed at the at the library with with, you know, some of the Agatha Christie's or, you know, Mary Higgins Clark, or did you watch Hitchcock movies? You know, I want to know what sort yeah. of was your, your touchstones. Well, definitely there was a lot of Agatha Christie when I was much younger. So when I was like 12, 13, I think my parents had a bunch of them in the house. And yes, I used to go to the library and get those out. As a teenager, um, I watched a lot of horror movies, which actually I didn't enjoy particularly, but my best friend was very into horror. So there was a lot of Halloween and Friday the 13th and those kind of awful things that had that real sort of fetishization of women's fear, which I, and I think a lot of those stayed with me. And then when I was in my 20s, I, I you know, I was really interested in, in, in books like Donna Tart, um, The Secret History, which was, the, you know, the very complex psychologically driven you know those really beautifully drawn characters but still with a murder mystery well uh, with a murder at the heart of the story so yeah I kind of had all sorts of different influences and then um you know now now what I read it tends to be often they're not necessarily crime novels but they're always novels that have some sort of darkness at the heart of them right right so you're reading these classic uh, mystery thrillers. You're watching some horror movies at, at your friends uh, urging, even though you were a little scared and didn't really like them at first. Um, didn't you also, before you actually became a hit author, didn't you also work as a journalist for that? You were oh, in yeah. my racket. You were work for the times in London. How do you think that did that sort of uh, stuff? Did you cover any crime stuff like that that helped you, you know, hone your skills in writing the genre? 
No, I was a business journalist, so I didn't get to cover any exciting stuff. Well, that's that's a bit mean to business journalists, but it was <laughs> it was it was kind of dry. I mean, I think there's lots about being a journalist that is great training for being a novelist, just in terms of how you write and how you edit. And the fact that I think one of the really good things is that you have to listen to the way people speak and to what they're telling you and what they're not telling you. You know, you get to get those rhythms of people's speech. But I think actually my writing fiction was a real reaction against um, my journalistic life, which was quite dry and very like fact based and very rooted in the day to day. And fiction was kind of an escape from that so um, I mean there were certainly skills I took from journalism but they weren't actually the stories themselves gotcha gotcha well either way you you ended up turning it into a, a a successful writing career but a lot of people might not remember you know ever a lot of people probably became conscious of you with you know the girl on the train obviously but before that a lot of people forget um, you had a you had a different uh, writing alias, a pseudonym. Um, you you wrote like four romantic comedy novels. Remind us. I did. Um, I wrote four romantic comedies under a pseudonym, but not very many people read those. Um, they were they came about in a kind of a strange way where I was commissioned to write the first one. So somebody, a publisher approached me and gave me sort of a, a character and, a, and an idea and asked me if I would write this novel really quickly, which I did, and I enjoyed doing it, but. Um, you know, romantic comedy was never really my game. I'm not not that romantic, not that funny. It was it was it was never going to work out eventually. All the you know the, the stories kept getting darker and darker, and more and more terrible things kept happening to to the people in them. So it was it was very clear that that you know that wasn't the right genre for me. <laughs> well, those it was Amy Silver was your pen That's name right, Amy for Silver. the for the rom coms. <laughs> but then you know, then of course um, Paula Hawkins burst out with her. You know, that's your actual name uh, for the best selling novel, The Girl on the Train. Talk about coming up with that. Were you writing? You know, were you writing on a train? I mean, so much of that had to do with that, you know, was it alcoholic sort of main character, sort of the idea of the unreliable narrator. Are we the audience, you know, experiencing the correct stuff here, trying to piece it together of what mm -hmm. might have gone in a little bit of a rear window idea? Let's see. Thinking she sees something out of this train. But, how, were, you know, were you riding on a train? Is that how you came up with it? Well, yeah, I did lots of commuting um, in and out of London, various bits of London um, in my working life. It's, it's very much like the, the way people live here, that you, people tend to live on the outskirts and then commute into town, or they did pre-pandemic anyway. Um, so it's a very recognisable thing. And, you know, you this is also when I was coming up with this idea, this was kind of pre-mobile phone. So everybody did, they'd be reading their paper or they'd be staring out the window and you pass all these houses. You come, a lot of the train lines run really, really close to houses. So you can actually see into them, particularly when the trains stop at for you know problems on the line which happens all the time as well so I you know it was those kind of I was always thrilled by the idea that you might see something dramatic or exciting which of course I never did but it did give me that I you know that sort of that was the germ of an idea there like what would you do if you saw something terrifying or you know scandalous or what have you and that was where kind of the idea for for the concept of the girl on the train came yeah. And talk, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mentioned I, I drew the comparison to, you know, Hitchcock's rear window, but in yeah. this case, it was kind of cool how, you know, talk about how important and, and vital it was that it, it's on a moving train. So, you know, unlike Jimmy Stewart, who's stuck in his chair looking out of a, a fixed position, on this is like you might see something that you 
uh, criminal to happen, but then the train's moving again, and then you have to wait and come back. But it, So talk about how important that it's a moving item that takes you away from what you thought you saw, but also a cyclical item where that train's going to run that cycle again, so you will pass it again, but that, that sort of space and that transportation vehicle kind of works to your mystery advantage. Yeah, because so so the woman who's on the train, the girl on the train, Rachel, she she go takes this train journey every day. She sees these houses every single day. She feels like she knows these people. And as you as you get into the novel, you realize that Rachel is also kind of a special a special character. She's got a drink problem. She's kind of obsessive. She's obsessed with her ex husband who lives in one of these houses that she passes. So she is she's got this rich fantasy life where she's imagining the lives of these people. And when she sees something, she believes that she has not special knowledge and this is all heightened by the fact that she's in a very bad emotional state and she's also extremely unreliable because of her drink problem so it's like a whole combination of things so yeah as you say she's not Jimmy Stewart sitting in a in a, in a chair who can't get out there she probably foolishly goes and tries to insinuate herself into the whole mystery and that's exactly. that's how she gets herself into trouble exactly let that be a warning, folks. Don't get involved. <laughs> um, well, talk about how I know we're short on time, but, you know, really quick, I would love your thoughts on on the movie version. I mean, it was uh, talk about how much that changed your life. You know, first, first, it's a best selling novel. You know, it's just this idea of a germ of a story you had that you thought would be cool. You, you, you know, write, write the story that you would love to read and you did. And suddenly, boom, it's a hit novel such that it becomes a, a movie. You know, talk about that, that really great performance by Emily Blunt and just that whole must have been a whirlwind seeing your book made into a film <laughs> oh yeah it was completely crazy and I thought they did an amazing job with it the uh, you know it was they stayed true to the heart the sort of darkness at the heart of the story Emily Blunt was fantastic as Rachel Justin Theroux was a really brilliant and chilling chilling uh Tom so yeah it was a I it was a, a crazy experience but a, obviously a very good one and uh, I don't want to spoil anything if for some reason you know how many however many years later people haven't read it or seen it but uh, how do I word this? How did you come up with that the corkscrew wine thing? <laughs> That's so. Oh, twisted. you'll you'll have to you have twisted. Yeah, it's literally twisted. Yeah, you'll have to uh, to to read the book to find out about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to know. Were you like in the kitchen with a wine bottle? And you said, "Oh, this would be a great prop for a." a I was thinking about scene. you know you have to think about who Rachel is, the fact that she's got a drink problem. What she would know. What, what implement would she know, you know, where to, to reach for it? She'd know exactly where the corkscrew was. And I guess red or white wine. I guess you'd want a red wine because that would help kind of cover up the blood maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, you've been really generous with your time. Um, I, I do want to actually throw out, you know, in between Girl on the Train and A Slow Fire Burning, you also wrote Into the Water. How, how rewarding was it to write that? To, you know, I'm sure after Girl on a Train, uh, everybody wanted to see what you were going to do next. So was there pressure in that regard or was it was it freeing where like, OK, I can pretty much write whatever I want now? A bit of both, to be honest. It was I mean, there was a lot of pressure and I was concerned about the fact that everybody would be waiting to see what I did next. But having had a big success, you also do feel slightly liberated that you can kind of you do feel that you can, you know, be ambitious if you want to do something completely different if you want to. There, there is something, yeah, as I say, liberating about having um, having had one big hit. Awesome. Well, I believe I could be wrong, but didn't Amblin pick that up for the movie rights? They're going to try to make a movie out of Into the Water, I believe. Uh, no. Well, they picked it up, but the the it's out of um, the option has expired now. So 
if anyone wants to, you know, get in touch, it's so available. It's, it's back out there if anyone wants to yeah. take it on. All right, cool. But first of all, um, you know, uh, let everyone check out your newest one, A Slow Fire Burning. Um, I'm sure that'll become a movie one day too, because that that's how you roll. So <laughs> um, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, anything in closing you want to say, you know, speak directly to our listeners. Uh, you know, this is why you should pick up this new novel. Oh, yeah. If you like a twisting, dark, occasionally funny revenge story do read a slow fire burning i'm sure you're gonna love it awesome well we'll let you get back to that wine corkscrew thank you thank you paula hawkins author appreciate it thanks a lot Bye. bye thanks so much for joining us on beyond the fame with jason fraley remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five star rating if you like what you hear we'll see you next time I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.